This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Apes, Pigs, and Comedians edition. It's Wednesday, July 26th, 2017. On today's show, War for the Planet of the Apes is the third installment in what many people believe is the most curious, contemplative, and in fact, really underappreciated franchise now going. And then what is humanity's proper relationship to the pig, which is both among the most delicious and most intelligent creatures on earth? And finally, what is the fate of comedy in these most undelicious and unintelligent times? That is, what's the fate of satire in the age of Trump? We discuss with uh, Jamel Bowie, who's joining us today. Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, of course, Jamel is chief political correspondent of Slate uh, and uh, Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Stephen. More for the Planet of the Apes is directed by Matt Reeves. He did the second installment in the series, too. It's filled with remarkable special effects and a fun kind of low-grade fevery performance from Woody Harrelson. But mostly what it features, I think, and I think most people think, is the remarkable performance, ongoing performance as Andy Serkis as Caesar, a kind of tour de force. I mean, not only of CGI and not only of his acting, but the bizarre, almost unnerving hybrid of the two. Anyway, he plays Caesar, the wise, world-weary simian who's achieved human intelligence and seemingly superhuman or extra-human wisdom. Jamel, before we listen to the clip, uh, you want to set it up? Sure. So this clip comes um, sort of towards the second act. Our, our main character, Caesar, is encountering Woody Harrelson for the second time. The first time is an encounter in his cave, and Caesar's cave the second time is actually at Woody Harrelson's installation in the in the snowy mountains. And then he's been captured, and Woody Harrelson is basically interrogating him, kind of taunting him. Have you finally come to save your apes? I can't free you. For me. Almost human. How did you know I was here? I was told you were coming. That more soldiers from the north would be joining you here. Joining me? To finish us off. For good. Um, Jamel, one of the many pleasures of having you on the show is that in addition to your superhuman wisdom, you're uh, um, improbably kind of a fanboy and a completist when it comes to the various franchise universes um, and now out in the blockbuster world, which um, speaking only for myself, I'm not. I admire these movies without really getting them. My sense is that you quite like them. Um, what did you like about this one? Yeah, so I I think it's worth sort of putting this movie into its larger context. It's the conclusion of this latest Apes trilogy, beginning with uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, with, which starred James Franco in addition to Circus. Um, 
Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which was in 2014, and now uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. And of course, they are kind of a re-envisioning of the original ape series. So uh, that's that's the context. And um, uh, the, the larger story here is sort of how we get from modern humanity to the Planet of the Apes. And this film takes place after, obviously, the event of Dawn, where um, Caesar is leading an ape civilization and a, a rogue ape, a former, a former ally who has turned antagonist, uh, Koba, uh, who was experimented on, uh, as a non-intelligent ape by humans and now kind of harbors a deep-seated hatred of humans, um, attacks a human settlement. And all of this takes place in sort of the, the Northern California woods, kind of in the Bay, general Bay area, um, attacks, a human installation and basically sparks a war between um, between Caesar's ape colony and uh, the human. So the war for the planet of the apes picks up not long after that. Uh, the war is ongoing. Um, both humans and apes are dying by the scores. And uh, what else is happening is the the virus that wiped out most of humanity is uh, is mutating and robbing humans of their speech and higher functions of intelligence. And so sort of the backdrop of all of this is that these apes are becoming more human. The humans are becoming more ape-like. And uh, what what I like about the series is that kind of under the cover of blockbuster filmmaking, it's a real exploration of uh, of human cruelty, of avarice, of racism, of militarism, of sort of kind of the, the worst of humanity with the apes kind of as a stand-in and at various various sort of installments as um, as various kinds of oppressed people, um, whether whether literally animals or sort of people uh, uh, oppressed by you know, capitalist exploitation, um, victims of racism, they kind of in each installment occupy that space. And so it's sort of a the, the larger story in a lot of ways is how oppressed people respond to oppression, what oppression looks like. And in this one, um, and in war, I, I think watching it and one reason I enjoyed it so much is it very much is, uh, an exploration, not just of those larger issues, but of vengeance and hate and how those emotions can fuel kind of spirals and cycles of violence, which is a theme Dawn touched on a lot as well, but I think it really comes to the fore in war. So Dana, I agree with everything that Jamel said, um, and uh, and as I said, admire without really getting the series. In that, um, I love the contemplative pacing. The performances by Circus are remarkable. The uh, integration of CGI into the sort of dramatic fibers of the story is quite remarkable. Uh, to the point that you don't notice it. It's not. It's it's normalized to a remarkable degree. At this, and and I get what are sort of maybe the di slightly didactic thematics of the film, but they don't always entirely work for me dramatically. I'm curious whether they do for you. I mean, I would I would want to know what about it doesn't work for you. I just I guess when I heard Jamel's summary of the whole trilogy thus far, well, the trilogy has now ended, I guess, whether there'll be more, more apes movies is another question. Um, but I was thinking about how the part that humans have played in each movie has has been reduced successively, right? I mean, James Franco and John Lithgow mm -hmm. and that human story was a pretty big part of the first movie and the relationship between Caesar the ape and his human kind of creator and, and first mentor. And uh, and then in the second movie, you can barely remember the humans. Like Harry Russell was in it, and there was some sort of foraging family of humans, but they were far less interesting than the apes. And when they were on screen, the movie would sort of 
you know, die a bit. And I think that that was the critical response to that movie as well, that the apes were more interesting than people. And now in this in this third iteration, there are essentially no humans at all. I mean, humanity seems to be reduced to this very, very small group of two bands of humans, some of whom want to destroy the apes. These are the ones led by this cult leader that Woody Harrelson plays. And then this other group that you never even glimpse, who I guess are trying to you know, work towards some kind of cure for the virus and have some kind of peace with the apes. But it's such a dark vision of humanity and of the sort of the future of humanity that really humanity is reduced down to one single character that we can sympathize with, which is this mute little girl that the ape band adopts on on their journey. So that was something that just really, really struck me about about these movies is that they're sort of about the apes becoming the good guys and, and us dying out and that being pretty much a triumphant thing. Jamal, let me point to two things in the in the movie that really stuck out for for me, and I think were intended to stick out. One is that the um, enslaved apes are uh, building a wall, right? So whether or not this movie was made uh, recently enough to account for the election of Donald Trump is doubtful, but certainly for the candidacy of Trump. So a wall has a you know prominent place in any such a kind of uh, you know parable like fiction like this one. And then the second was. There is a cave wall that features a piece of graffiti uh, that says Apocalypse Now on it. So there's there's both a, a political precedent that's in the forefront of the mind of the minds of the people creating this movie uh, and a cinematic one. The Woody Harrelson character is clearly alluding back to Brando's Kurtz in uh, Coppola's masterpiece. They stuck those these things stick out a little too much for me to entirely bond with the movie. I feel like I'm having a conversation with a very intelligent filmmaker sometimes more than I feel like I'm watching a story in which I've lost <laughs> myself. No, I think that's fair. And um, when I, I, I just watched the film last night at a very late showing, uh, I was had the entire theater to myself, which was fun. So I, I like Woody Harrelson. I always appreciate his performances. But he, I think his character in that, his, his role did stick out. It's sort of, if most of the film is this very human story uh, this is very uh, about caesar and his struggle with his hate and his desire to avenge his family but also his desire to sort of see his people to safety um and and that interacting with his allies among the apes uh and his his closest associates who join him in this journey kind of into a heart of darkness uh, into the heart of the human installation Woody Harrelson kind of sticks out of this sort of like insane, you know, he's this insane military guy who is more, seems to belong more to like, a, he's very blockbustery. He's very blockbustery and he's very, um, uh, I don't know. I, I think you're right. He, he sticks out. He doesn't really seem to be there when he is on screen. Sure, he's, he's fun to watch Woody Harrelson, but it seems to become a very different movie when he's there. Um, uh, a movie where I think you're right that it's clear that Reeves is wearing his influences a little too much on his sleeve there. Yeah, I would just jump in and say mm-hmm. that the, the graffito in the cave is apocalypse now, which is even pushing it a little bit more into yeah. the realm of, <laughs> of, of, of corny send up. And I think I said this in my review, but I think that the apocalypse now imagery and the really, really heavy influence that that clearly has on the character Woody Harrelson plays and his performance of it is one of the weakest parts of the movie. I mean, happily, as I said before, mm-hmm. there aren't that many humans in this movie and there's so much good drama among the apes that um, that we can kind of let that go by. But yeah, I, I, I agree that they were laying it on a little thick with the Kurtz imagery. 
Okay, Dana, before we exit the segment, I do have to ask you one question. What did you make of this other element of the movie, which is the acquisition along one of the journeys to the Woody Harrelson installation of a mute, blonde, omniscient child? Um, I th- I I couldn't make that work for me, but I wondered if it worked for you. Yeah, and that, that's I, I, that character could almost have worked if she had learned to speak or been able to speak from the beginning. Something about the muteness combined with the fact that there are essentially no female characters of import, either ape or human, in this movie. As a few people have pointed out, given that the one human female character is mute and uh, and the female ape characters that we see barely speak or don't speak at all, this is really, you know, it's a movie completely without women. And so that's, I think, what bothered me the most about the little girl character. I mean, it's it's also just a stock, it's such a stock thing to pick up the little blonde yeah. orphan and then have something to protect and, and worry about. But I, it, on the other hand, if that girl was not in there, this really would be a movie in some ways about the end of our species. And that might be so dark that we couldn't get any summer blockbuster audiences into the theaters at all. It's worth saying um, that that girl whose name is Nova, um, uh, Maurice the orangutan, right? Maurice orangutan, names her or deems her Nova is actually a, a callback to the original film um, where Linda Harrison plays um, a mute blonde human oh. woman named Nova who Charlton Heston encounters. Very and well one done. little funny thing about all these movies is they contain direct callbacks to that first film. And um, I, I actually, having seen every single Apes film, um, these films really are, they're more remakes of the sequels to the Apes movies, which deal with the rise of the Planet of the Apes more than they are kind of like a, a re-envision of that first film. They kind of are taking a, a lot of the material in those latter four movies and turning them into something coherent and actually kind of good. Yeah, they're prequels, basically, right? As mm-hmm. those movies were prequels. Right. But what they're setting up is, is an interesting question. I mean, another call forward, you might call it, is Cornelius. That's the name of the little baby ape in yeah. this movie who's, who's Caesar's right. son, who seems set to, you know, to take who, the who ape Who grows up next. to be Roddy McDowell. Exactly, right? exactly. Cornelius right. is the main <laughs> ape character yeah. of the first movie. So, yeah, I don't, maybe we're set for some damn dirty apes in the next next installment. But as long as we're talking about some of the other ape characters, I really, really hope that Bad Ape, who's a new character who's introduced in, in this installment and who's, I don't know what you'd call it when someone's motion captured, who's voiced and embodied, uh, you know, digitally by Steve Zahn, is a great character. I mean, comic relief is hard to come by in a movie like this, and it can easily, it could easily have been something really corny or cringeful. And I just thought he was wonderful as this ape who's a little bit touched in the head from many years of, of isolation after escaping from a zoo. So yeah, more Steve I thought absolutely thought it was the best part of the movie by far. Um, Okay, well, anyway, it's War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, and it's uh, in multiplexes near you. And come to facebook.com slash culturefest if you have uh, opinions to hurl at us about uh, about this um, franchise. Okay, moving on. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right. Well, um, before we go any further, Dana, I'm sure we have some business to take care of. What what do you got? We do indeed. We have some exciting business. Some people on Twitter were asking me, what's the information about the Toronto show you guys are doing? When is it going to be? Where is it going to be? And I told them we had to wait for the information and now we've got it. So more news about our upcoming live show in Toronto, Canada. It will be at the Toronto Public Library. It's during the film festival. It'll be toward the end of the film festival on September 13th. 
at 7 p.m. in the Toronto Public Library. The tickets will be free and will be available at 9 a.m. on August 23rd. So make a note now in your calendar for August 23rd. Jump online and get some because they're going to go fast. There is one way to reserve your spot, though, and that is because we'll be hosting a special cocktail after party at a nearby location to be announced where you can hang out, drink, eat, and chat with us after the show. You can find more details at slate.com slash live or facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Slate podcast pick of the week is Slate Money, hosted by Felix Salmon, Anna Szymanski, and Jordan Weissman. If you like our show, you'll probably like theirs, because every week they talk about three money or finance-related topics in the news, sort of like the Culture Gab Fest, but for money. I'd recommend a discussion from the July 8th episode, which is called the White Collar Crime Edition, where they sit down with an archaeologist named Larry Coben to discuss the case of Hobby Lobby's attempted acquisition of ancient artifacts. Or their most recent episode on Donald Trump's strange ties to Deutsche Bank. You can find Slate Money at slate.com slash money or wherever you get your podcasts. And one more bit of business in Slate Plus today, we will be talking about the announcement of the new upcoming show from the creators of Game of Thrones and whether or not it's a good idea for HBO to put its money toward an alternate history show where the South won the Civil War. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus. You can get it free for 90 days if you download the new iOS Slate app at slate.com slash app. And there you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months to see if you like it. It's by far the easiest way to get those bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. So get Slate Plus by trying the app free for 90 days. And to do that, you go to slate.com slash app. All right, Stephen, back to the show. For this next segment, I should say we kind of backed into watching a film called Okja, which is on Netflix streaming, but also in theaters as well. We had decided to consider a series of essays that have uh, contemplated the moral status of pigs as intelligent beings and of the human beings who uh, turn them into yummy bacon. Uh, But the movie, Dana, I was really surprised to discover is actually a beautiful thing in its own right. It's not didactic or preachy. It's quite humanistic and fun. It's directed by Bong Joon-ho, who made the movie Snowpiercer, which we discussed a few years ago, and which, funnily enough, has really, really stayed with me. I I don't remember loving it at the time, but it is a movie that I have not uh, forgotten at all. Um, Anyway, this one stars Tilda Swinton, and An Seo Hyun. Um, the movie tells the story of a genetically engineered super pig and its relationship to the little girl who raised her and the multinational corporation that would love to exploit her. Uh, why don't we listen to a clip? That's it. Everything's going to be okay. Mondo, get out of the shop. Thank you very much. And run. Ten years ago, 26 local farmers from 26 far-flung countries were each given a super piglet. This year, I traveled each one of those 26 farms to decide who will be invited to the best super pig fest in New York City, where it will be unveiled to the world. You've done an incredible job. Thank you. Panda the old man. Oh, Panda Johnny. So that was Jake Gyllenhaal's character, who's this kind of uh, pop scientist, like a TV scientist who's been in part behind the pig experiment, encountering Oakjaw for the first time. Dana, I first, before we get into the many morally complex issues about you know eating intelligent creatures, uh, what did you make of this as a movie? Oh, I loved Okja. I really, really like it. It's one of my favorite movies of this year so far. I mean, you mentioned uh, Snowpiercer. Bong Joon-ho has made five movies so far, and every one of them has been completely wildly different and completely wildly imaginative. So he's made sort of a, a, a monster, you know, kaiju-style monster movie. The host about this sort of kaiju-style monster who tears through soul. Uh, and he's made a couple murder mysteries that are very offbeat and strange. He's just he has a wild imagination. And I love all the places that it goes in Okja. And as you say, although in some ways this is 
this is a contemplative movie about what it means to eat animals. And it certainly is is about the attempt to save this particular animal and about the terrible conditions of the slaughterhouse that these other super pigs are, are being sent to. But it's not a screed on behalf of vegetarianism or veganism or anything like that. In fact, this PETA-like organization, I think it's called the Animal Liberation Front, that, that at, a, at a certain point intervenes and tries to save Okja is is also satirized and is is made to you know seem in some ways ri- ideologically rigid and and ridiculous. Mm, I think it's it's mm-hmm. a movie that has some sort of equal opportunity mocking of everyone, but I'm not quite sure where it comes down in the end. It also is a movie that you know makes you walk out feeling different about eating bacon. Jamel, we're going to pivot in a second to um, the subject of eating meat and the ethics of eating intelligent um, creatures capable of feeling and memory but in the meantime what did you make of okja as a movie i uh, like dana I, I loved it i'm a big fan of bong joon ho um snow you I, I probably i may have liked snowpiercer more than you did uh at first watch uh but i i love that movie and um revisit have revisited a couple times since i've seen it i love the host i i love sort of his um sort of Spielberg-y style. Um, and I think that really comes to the fore with Okja, which is in a lot of ways um, a, a kind of E.T. Uh, for the 21st century, um, a, a movie where sort of the the story here is uh, uh, this young girl coming to moral realization, moral understanding through connection and empathy with a non-human creature. Um, and one of, you know, intelligence and um, uh, and empathy. And I found that very powerful, um, uh, something I could really connect to. But then also on a visual level, I just I just enjoyed the film. Um, I thought I think I think that one of uh, Bong Joon-ho's great strengths is that he uh, he is not indulgent as a filmmaker. He I, one of my frustrations watching a lot of modern movies is just just the extent to which I think uh, a lot of directors don't know when not to include something, don't know don't know when not to not to kind of let things be. Um, lots of crowded frames. I, I may have just watched a lot of the Fast and Furious movies, so this is on my mind. Um, uh, crowded, uh, congested frames, and you don't really get any of that here. Um, it's a very, uh, I think, elegant movie in its composition and its style. I completely agree, and I felt I understand that Miyazaki is Japanese and comes out of a somewhat different tradition. I'm not trying to lump all Asian filmmakers together, but there's a very contemplative frame that he uses, uh, and the whimsy um, and 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 slightly magical realist tone comes perhaps slightly through the influence of Miyazaki. He's not, in addition to not junking up the frame or busying up the frame, he's not meaninglessly kinetic with the camera. He doesn't remind you that he's behind the camera by moving it around in clever ways. Uh, I just found the movie humanist was the word that kept coming back to me right from the beginning and also although it is didactic. full of a lot of brutal social satire as well yes. i mean i guess that sort of fits in with the humanism in that you know there's something for the for the good humans to fight against but the tilda swinton character and the whole corporation the super pig breeding corporation that she runs is uh is really a, a vicious kind of send-up of of capitalist culture very and and quite broad and some especially right from the beginning quite uh, right in the beginning quite broad but my sense dana is that very often a lot of movies that that are proud of their uh, the 
brutality of their own satire are, satire are themselves somewhat brutalist, that they participate a little bit in the flattening impulse that satire has, but by not giving us also what is destroyed or imperiled by things like multinational corporations or you know profoundly unethical human beings. And in this movie, I didn't feel as though that imbalance existed at all. And I think that goes to what Jamil said about Spielberg and about you you do feel sort of that big humanist, I mean, arguably sentimental, but in the best way kind of impulse of Spielberg behind the movie too. Before we move on to pigs, I also just have to throw in that I think we can all agree on one thing, which is that as successful as almost all of Okja is, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance is a complete failure and he wildly overacts. (laughs) And every scene that he was on screen, I was just cringing out of my skin. Okay. Well, as I said, the real focus of the segment is the ethics of eating meat, but I'm glad to hear that we all um, concur on this movie. It's wonderful. I loved it too. Oh, yeah. But Go Jamel, see let me pivot to you. I know from your Twitter feed that you're a, a something of a gourmand, and I'm suspecting um, also an omnivore. Have you ever gone through a period where you didn't or were tempted to not eat an animal for an ethical reason? I did, actually. I think this happens to a lot of people in college. Um, but I had, what did I read? I read, I've been reading a lot about animal ethics for like a year as a, as a consequence of my studies and just like my own interests. And I, I went through this period of not, of not eating meat, um, for about a year, uh, that fell apart when I visited Italy. It was just sort of like, whatever, um, I'm going to, I'm going to eat whatever it's given to me. <laughs> Otherwise um, you wouldn't have a ton to eat in Italy probably. Right. Yeah. Uh, and since then I've kind of come to this place where I don't actually eat very much meat at all. Um, I'm like a weekend meat eater. I'll eat meat on, uh, Saturdays and Sundays. Um, usually something that I prepare, um, I try to source my meat as sustainably as possible. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia now, where that's actually very easy to do. Um, and uh, that's sort of the the approach I've taken to meat, in, in large part because I do think that animals um, of all intelligences, but specifically, you know, cows, pigs, livestock, basically, um, are animals of intelligence and of empathy, and that we we may not owe them the same obligations as we owe other persons, human or otherwise, but we certainly have ethical obligations to them. And one of those is to basically, um, uh, you know, treat them with a measure of respect and dignity. And I don't think that's compatible with regular meat eating, given what that requires in terms of the economics of it, the production of meat. And so as someone who enjoys meat uh, and who maybe doesn't quite have the courage of his convictions enough to give it up entirely again. My kind of my kind of thing is that like basically I don't eat very much of it and what I eat comes from um, sources I trust um, and are sort of decent and ethical in their treatment of their livestock. Mm. Dana, what about you? You know, I never went through a vegetarian period, but I would say the period in my life when I've eaten the least meat is right now, basically. I think I keep seeing more and more reasons, environmental, ethical, just, you know, financial health. There's so many reasons to eat less meat and so few reasons to justify continuing to just mindlessly consume whatever one feels like consuming that uh, that I try to wait. I mean, I don't know that I have a specific rule, but I basically try to wait until there's sort of no choice. You know, you're at somebody's house and they're serving some delicious Mm -hmm. meat at their dinner party. I'm not going to be the person who objects. There's a couple, I have a tradition of having a steak dinner with a friend once every fall and I'm not going to stop doing that. 
But I think at every possible opportunity, I'm going to try to not eat those four-footed, intelligent life forms anymore because it just seems harder and harder to justify. And I was reading some things recently about um, you know the best things one can do for the planet, right? Some of them living in New York, I already don't have a car. So that's something. Have only one child, so I'm not producing too many people to go on and consume the world's resources. But eating meat is one one area in which I think we could all really improve our footprint. Right. So we we all concur that like factory farming is is uh, environmentally degrading and 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 morally suspect if not disgusting. But to turn um, it back on I'm you, me- Steve, of the three of us, you're the oh, one who dear. did have a period of being not only vegetarian but vegan for a while. And vegetarian, I think, for quite a few years, right? Like when we when I first knew you, when we were doing the show, you you definitely didn't eat meat. So how has your thinking changed on that, and uh, what direction is it moving in now? Well, it's a it's sort of a comp a complicated and unnecessary story of why I returned to eating meat. Um, I did it sort of on a dare and um, it's just, it's too complicated to go into, but the, but the tall and the short of it is as soon as B12 hit my system for the first time in 20 years, I realized I'd made a mistake. I mean, I, I just, I think that there are some people who can subsist as vegetarians or vegans without taking a big hit to their energy level. And it turns out I'm really not one of them. Like my energy level is completely different since I went back to eating all, all meats. I'm now a total omnivore. There's nothing I don't don't eat. Um, and but I also like Jamel. I live in the Hudson Valley, surrounded by meat farms that are humane and environmentally sustainable and essentially organic. And uh, so I can eat with relative ease, you know, superb meat um, and humane meat. Um, but what I'm interested in is why a kind of moral absolutism attends either choice in a way. Jamel, you said something I thought was interesting, which is that we do owe something ethically to animals as as intelligent or sentient, certainly, beings, um, but we don't owe them the same thing we owe other human beings. Where do you think we draw that line, and why do a lot of people have so much trouble drawing it? So like Peter Singer, for example, was almost inevitably one of the people you were reading as an undergrad, and he makes yep. a, a kind of moral slippery slope argument that if you're going to grant a degree of being uh, inner being to animals, you you owe them uh, the full suite of ethical um, obligations. But anyway, where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? And why is the slippery slope so um, inevitably part of this discussion? I, I think I, I think that the answer to the second part of your question first, I think the slippery slope is inevitably part of the question because it is, it is genuinely difficult to draw the line. My own view is that these decisions, I'm not sure it's possible to sort of like lay out a a fully coherent ethical framework here. Um, I think these decisions are made in large part on on intuition, um, which may you know we recognize uh, that some animals are more intelligent than others. We we have intuitions about how uh, animals are treated and should be treated, and we kind of go on from there. For me. Um, I kind of have this general principle that like we owe something to animals just as like fellow living beings. Um, and then from there, it is kind of it is kind of based on intuition. It's based in sort of um, it's shaped by my, you know, cultural life, cultural experiences, the, the kind of society I've been brought up in. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of OK with it. I'm OK with it being not as rigorous as it could be. Um, mm hmm. Uh, I think when you're thinking broadly in terms of like society at large, 
I think it's, I think the rigidity is unhelpful. I think it would be better if you just got people to think more, more seriously about the extent to which they owe some kind of ethical obligation and let that lead people where it goes, not worry too much about giving them a coherent system for acting. Cause I, I just don't think, I don't know. I, I don't think that's practical. I don't think it's, um, uh, possible. Um, I think that this is a, this is a case where, the ideas or the frameworks we should be looking for need to fundamentally be workable for people. Um, and uh, that's what makes them, you know, th- that uh, something that fits our intuitions and is workable, I think is true enough for most people. I mean, mm-hmm. it's true enough for me at least. Um, yeah, beautifully put. I agree. Well, I mean, a question to ask if, if you're going down the Peter Singer road, you know, of, of kind of how to think through and legislate our relationship to animals is why does sentience matter so much to us? You know, this this great piece that we all read in Eon together about pigs and what incredible animals they are and how intelligent they are and social and that they're essentially up there with dogs in terms of their ability to relate to each other and people in the world, right? And they are also the most consumed meat animal in the world. So why does that bother us more than, you know, eating something like an oyster that we perceive as being less sentient? I mean, in a way, this goes back to, you know, Caesar and the Planet of the Apes movies that we were talking about earlier, where the uh, the acquisition of sentience and consciousness, you know, elevates these apes to a higher moral plane and thus changes their relationships to humans. But in fact, if we're going to look at ourselves as sort of the stewards of the planet, right, we're the ones with the technology that can destroy it or not in a way you could say that we owe the same to all animals and then mm. if you want to get as extreme as one of the uh, the animal liberation front ideologues in in Okja even plants right he's kind of scared to eat a turnip for fear that it feels pain i mean because <laughs> jamel as you say these questions are so undecidable and slippery they're really everybody has to drive their own stake into the ground at their own point mm. I wonder, though, if if some framework isn't possible, as I was trying to puzzle this through, here's what I came up with provisionally, which is that, you know, the kind of defining scientific insight of modernity is Darwinian, right? That we are on a continuum with all other life, uh, including, uh, but not limited to other sentient beings. And as part of that continuum, perhaps we have a commonality that demands of us an ethical attention when we interact with uh, animals, even if they're non-human. Um, on the other hand, you know, what is it that makes us distinctive within or even beyond that continuum? And I think it's that we're radically narratively based creatures. And if you humiliate another human being, the pain that they are feeling is not limited to the physical pain that you're inflicting, right? The nature of torture is both to inflict immense amounts of physical pain, but also psychological pain on someone that is highly personalized and interior to them. And you can do a version of that to an animal, but not all of it exactly. And secondly, when you end a human life, you're you're more than just ceasing biological functions. You are choosing to end a story before that story has been completed. And so it may be that we are on one form of a continuum which demands of us a certain kind of ethical obligation to anything that is sentient and has feelings in an important sense. But then there's life in a larger sense, right? Human life or existential life, and we owe a different moral obligation to that. So I can have bacon and feel good too, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, that was sort of what I came up with. (laughs) <laughs> well, but why doesn't a pig, why doesn't a pig's life have a narrative too? It certainly does to the pig, a and pig's maybe life to other has pigs. a narrative. A pig's life has a narrative. Dana, 
<laughs> I mean, it has a beginning and a middle and an end. It has relationships. It has suffering and presumably I, some form of pleasure. I, I'm not, Jamel, I can't quite fi- follow Dana in this. I think of animals as living in a continual present and don't really have a sense of their own personal past or their own personal future and no consciousness of death. And there is no Jean-Paul Sartre among us. I mean, okay, may- maybe not narrative in the sense that the pig experiences it as a story, but... <laughs> Jamel, jump in here. I mean, do you think that there's something anthropocentric about about Steve's last utterance? Sure. Uh, to the extent that I think that there, I think there may be animals that do conceive of themselves, that do have their own narratives. This is why I kind of sort of slipped in non-human persons too, uh, in, in my earlier statement, because I do think that may apply to animals. I think I think I do believe that there are intelligences on this planet that are that we could call sentient, but are sort of beyond our, beyond our understanding. They're alien intelligences. And so we can't, it's hard for us to relate to them. And so I don't, you know, this is how I kind of feel about dolphins and elephants and whales, Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking. Yeah. Octopuses too, Um, I would put in there, you know, they've got some serious brain activity going on. All right. Well, I think we'll end it there because that's beautifully put. The um, essay that we didn't really end up discussing that directly, but I think we discussed quite well indirectly, is called The Pig on Your Plate by Barbara King. It's in Aeon, which I think is a wonderful publication. And we all loved the movie Okja, which I really recommend uh, highly. It was not what I expected. A delightful film. Uh, on Netflix and in a movie theater. So check it out and come to facebook.com slash culturefest. This is a rich topic, and I'm sure there's going to be both vituperation and... Um, uh, uh, hallelujahs from our listenership. Okay, moving on. The musician Father John Misty said uh, that he felt on election night as if, quote, all of the Gen X humor that I was weaned on had this very cruel orgasm in my head. In that moment, satire died. We've heard a lot of that since the election of Trump. It beggars imagination, uh, but also our ability to satirize it. Uh, the world is so self-satirizing now. It's an orgy of such hypocrisy. The idea that you need to tune in to a late-night comedian to expose its absurdities on your behalf by exaggerating themselves is itself somewhat absurd. Um, this has inspired an essay by Emily Nussbaum in The New Yorker about the role of humor uh, and jokes in the creation and uh, selling of Donald Trump and self-selling of Donald Trump. And that has led to an essay by Andrew Kahn in Slate Arguing, if I understand it, Dana, I'm going to have to ask you and Jamel to help explain it to me. I do think it's a good essay, but it's complex. But as I understand the argument, it's that prior to Lenny Bruce, who revolutionized comedy in the late 50s, humor and comedy, stand-up comedy maybe in particular, were not really truth-telling media, um, at least not in the way we've come to expect it now. So we shouldn't be disappointed or confused that humor is somehow being rendered impotent. Dana, let me focus this a little bit by just asking you a simple question. Is your relationship to satire, especially on television, so Saturday Night Live and and the late night guys, has it changed in some fundamental or interesting way since the election of Donald Trump? Well, you know, I think I consume less of it. And that may just be because I'm so we are all so exhausted by the news of the day that I don't necessarily need to hear it satirized. It's already, you know, being satirized as it enters my brain. Um, But I'm not sure that I agree with not only Andrew Kahn's, but it seems like several different essayists uh, proclamation that comedy is now killed dead in the age of Trump and there's no more future for comedy. Um, I'm, I'm not, And of course, I'm overstating the argument to make him into a straw man right now, but he is essentially sort of saying satire as we know it has to rethink itself. 
that may be the case. But when Sean Spicer, for example, announced that he was retiring last week, my first thought was, oh, God, no more Melissa McCarthy, Sean Spicer's on Saturday Night Live. I mean, that may be the one great comedic gem that's emerged thus far from the Trump administration is that characterization of Sean Spicer. But I, I think that there is still a place for that that need for release. And it's not that every show is getting it right or that the models that were working during the Bush administration or the Obama administration will necessarily work now. But the idea that that is some kind of death knell for laughter seems pretty extreme. And uh, although that Father John Misty quote you started off with, I think, speaks to a, a sinking feeling of demoralization that many of us had for months after the election. I mean, all you have to do is go on Twitter and see that people are making all kinds of jokes about everything all the time. And some of them are really mm-hmm. funny. Yeah, that's a good point. Jamel, you are both a political pundit and a millennial. You grew up with The Daily Show and, and um, you know, a kind of heavy dosage of television satire as a way of processing the Bush years. What, what, what would you say the role of satire has been both before and after Trump, both in the rise of Trump and the rebuke of him since his um, election win? Yeah, I mean, I it's funny. I The Daily Show, the its sort of breakout year was 2004, I think. Um, it's breakout year for politics was 2004, and I would have been a senior in high school. Yeah, that, that, that election cycle. I would have been a junior or senior in high school in the election cycle. I didn't really watch much of The Daily Show. When the Colbert Report hit, I didn't really watch much of that. I've never been one for um, that kind of almost didactic political satire in part because I think, I don't know. I I don't have like super coherent thoughts on this, but I think that that style of satire um, has, it can be funny and ridiculing sort of the absurdities of politics, ridiculing the, um, the, all of that um, has its place, but there's also this other current to it, which is a kind of anti-politics um, that the problem is that people are uh, venal, people you know can't just get down the business and they would just do those things that politics would be better. And I just don't think that's true. I think politics are are by definition uh you know self-centered and venal and uh, all the terrible things we don't say about them it's just kind of what it is um and the the goal is to sort of like utilize that to accomplish things to like work through it to to incentivize certain behaviors not others um but the kind of again the best way i can think of describe it is the kind of anti-politic sentiment that i think really kind of courses through a lot of mainstream satire i think is um, is ultimately corrosive. Uh, that's not an insight I have when I was 17. It's something that's more kind of come to me in the past five years. Um, so there's that. Um, I think I, I see some of that in the post-Trump uh, or in the, not post-Trump, or in the, in the after his election uh, era. I, I see, and this is something Khan touches on in his essay, sort of like the didacticism about uh, satire uh, as it relates to to Trump, um, a sort of, you know, everyone trying to do their best network impression and, uh, you know, screaming about the madness of it all. I don't think I've seen any Trump satire that really gets to something interesting or profound about the current moment. Um Actually, I take that back. I do. I see there's one thing I think that has been done um, since 
Trump entered into our political universe that really kind of that really kind of touches something something profound and that was oddly enough SNL and it was SNL's Black Jeopardy thing. I think that actually got something yeah. important about the current moment. Um, but that's really it, honestly. Like I I don't think I think comedy thus far has been a bit impotent uh, in terms of um, saying something interesting about the moment um, without. And also without like retreating into absurdity, which is something else that Khan tackles in the essay. Well, one of the many documents that we read in preparing for this was an interview with a bunch of different comedians, sort of a short statement from a bunch of working comedians about comedy in the age of Trump and, you know, how they feel about comedy now. And I believe it was Mike Birbiglia, although a couple people might have made this point, who said that, you know, basically in order to have a joke, the classic structure of a joke with a setup and a punchline, you need to have some shared set of facts that are reality, right? I mean, you can't take a partially true reality or a reality from which something has been excluded and then turn it into a joke. And so, I mean, I think comedians are struggling with the Trump administration's successful scrambling of the signals of reality so that none of us can agree what actually happened or what statement was just made. Uh, and that to make comedy from that, you know, marsh of, of meaning is just really difficult. Mm-hmm. Also, I think, you know, laughter is a product of, of uh, this, this uh, the, the degree to which setup and punchline works is that a circuitry is formed that you weren't expecting. And in that instant, you're amazed that that circuitry was made and fits so perfectly and you and you laugh, right? And for, I think that to happen, there has to be something about which you were unconscious and were made conscious by the joke. I mean, surprise is a huge element. And I think one of the things Jamel was pointing to is that essentially this John Stewart style of humor as it evolved over the course of The Daily Show and now is being applied to the Trump administration involves something that we, the implied audience and actual audience, all see. I mean, we see it vividly. We see the fucking hypocrisy and, and uh, you know, a grotesquerie. It's impossible to miss. So we're already all so fully conscious that the that the classic structure of a joke and the kind of unconscious work it performs can't really happen, and therefore its revelatory power is is gone. And I agree with Jamel that it was that Black Jeopardy segment that brought things that otherwise weren't fully conscious or said to the surface, and that's why it was was important and, and revelatory. But a second insight, and I'm curious to hear both of your reactions to it, is that you know, the pattern since the 60s broadly construed, uh, and I'm hardly the first person to point this out, is that kind of they win politics and we win culture. So on the part of the left, there's this persistent sense of political defeat that, that just has an inexorable quality to it, that somehow the crowd doesn't have our back. And But on their part, there's this equally powerful sense of defeatism and resentment that, that culturally the left broadly construed owns you know hollywood and the media and essentially american culture aside from politics and what i find that's intrinsically toxic i believe but what i find especially toxic about satire is it just heightens both of those things right during the bush years the coping mechanism of john stewart essentially admitted the broad outlines of that relationship but it said it said okay well you know they're doing grotesque horrible things but we can't really stop it but we can laugh at it and that solidified a set of attitudes that were both self-congratulatory and passive in their essence in some ways um and i i, I think in some in i i kind of hope jamal that november 9th changed that and that people feel the need to be active in a way that simply laughing 
at the foibles of the obviously stupid won't serve us. I think that's true. I, I think I think um, if you kind of broaden a view away from social media and such and look at just what ordinary people are doing in their lives, that there has been a real drive towards action, towards getting involved. I, I think I do think that the election of Donald Trump has um, has shaken people of something of, of a kind of complacency. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. At least that's my observation. To push back a little, though, on what I think has become something of a piece of perceived wisdom that all late night TV satire is is complacent. I mean, I think different comedians are moving in different directions. I mean, I don't watch the Colbert Late Show with any regularity, but I know from the bits that I've seen and from, you know, times that we've talked about it here on this show that he's sort of changed his his approach toward talking about the administration, that he's become more barbed, more direct, less satirical and more uh, sort of activist, I guess I would say. I also think that John Oliver's show, which I try to never miss, does something that none of these late night comedy shows have done, which is that it has those long reported segments, which are also funny, but which generally report out some story, you know, like net neutrality or asset forfeiture or something that's sort of considered like an important but boring topic that nobody knows very much about. And uh, and that seems very valuable and it makes me laugh as well. So I'm just standing up a little bit for the possibility of being able to laugh without being some sort of complacent asshole. Okay. Well, I should mention some of these essays. There's Trump Hasn't Killed Comedy by Andrew Kahn and Slate. Uh, the Emily Nussbaum essay in The New Yorker is from January 23rd is How Jokes Won the Election. Uh, there's also How Late Night Comedy Fueled the Rise of Trump by Caitlin Flanagan in The Atlantic. So it's clearly a, noticing a trend here. But um, anyway, come tell us what you think about comedy and the relationship to uh, the rise of Trump at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, I'm going to recommend a blog post from several years ago, but which I just happened to come across this weekend because the author of this blog post did an, an interview on his podcast with Virginia Heffernan of Slate's Trumpcast. Jamel, a co-host along with you of that great podcast and uh, and just generally a great writer and thinker, Virginia Heffernan. Anyway, she happened to do this interview with this fellow named Tim Urban, who runs a website, a blog of his own called Wait But Why?, and uh, and because this guy was interesting and funny in the interview, I went and started reading some of the old posts on Wait But Why. And I came across, and this sounds like such a holy grail, you guys won't believe it, but I came across a post about procrastination that has actually helped me to procrastinate less while writing. Like, it actually works. <laughs> this guy's this guy's sort of technique or argument or description of what procrastination is and why it happens. And uh, to describe how his, his blog works, it's sort of like... Um, very conversational, long-form discussions of, you know, experiences that we all have every day. So this post about procrastination is not one of those social science kind of arguments about studies show and, you know, here's hmm. what we've learned about attention span or anything like that. It really is sort of a subjective deep dive into what it feels like to be trying to complete an important task and to keep, you know, getting distracted by trivia. It's quite long. It's a couple thousand word long post, I think, but uh, but he really sets up a great sort of compelling argument along with his own little sketches and stick figures and arrows. And, you know, um, it sort of feels like somebody's sitting down with a napkin in a diner telling you how not to procrastinate when you write. And uh, and I think it helped me get more done in the past week. So uh, again, the blog is called Wait But Why? The whole blog is fun to peruse and look around at. But this particular post from 2013 is titled Why Procrastinators Procrastinate. Oh, my Lord, that sounds amazing. But um, before I forget, also, how is it possible Virginia Heffernan has never been on this podcast? Is that, that really true? Be, I think it is. That has to be rectified. I oh, mean, yes, she's at been once. a friend of mine for 
forever. I met her in Charlottesville, Virginia, as a matter of fact. But uh, anyway, Jamel, what do you have? I have a movie. Um, I recently watched uh, Hitchcock's The 39 Steps, one of uh, his films uh, before he hit Hollywood. And I loved it. <laughs> um, I feel like that's good. You know, it's one of those movies that is extremely well regarded. So whatever, I loved it. But I will say why I loved it. Um, the first is that it's like very funny and uh, and entertaining and thrilling. Um, even for a movie from the 30s, which has a bit of a different pacing than I think modern movies do. And, and it's a little hard for some people to get into that pacing. I found it very exciting and very fast-paced for the time. Um, and it was interesting to watch as sort of like, you can see themes, ideas, scenarios, shots even, that Hitchcock would, would revisit with uh, North by Northwest. And there's a lot of ways in which the 39 Steps, which is based off of a spy novel, um, is kind of a proto North by Northwest. And that was kind of fun. It was kind of fun to, to pick up those, um, uh, pick those up and sort of think about what their analogs and, and that later film were or are. Um, and so, yeah, the, the 39 Steps, Alfred Hitchcock, 1935. It's a lot of fun. Um, the Twist, one of the few movies where I, where I did not ex- anticipate the twist and then was genuinely blown away when it happened. Am um, I remembering correctly, Jamel, that that's, that's the early Hitchcock that has the uh, extended sequence where the man and woman are shackled together and they have to do everything handcuffed? Yes. That is such a great idea and, and so beautifully executed in that movie. That's at the top of people shackled together in movie scenes, I would say. It, it really is. It, it, it seems like it's, I think because we're, you know, 70, 80 years removed from it, and that's kind of now like a cliche thing, but the way executed, uh, way Hitchcock executed is, is actually really great and, and really funny. And their chemistry, um, Robert Dunnott and Madeline Carroll's chemistry is like incredible. Yeah, in general, those black and white English Hitchcocks are far too little seen. I mean, you're always getting into conversations with Hitchcock heads who know all the Hollywood stuff and have barely seen any of the of the English mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, here, here. I totally agree. All right, well, very quickly, I'm going to uh, recommend a movie we may or may not talk about. We'll get to it if it gets a big Oscar nod. But The Big Sick uh, is really, is terrific. I did, I went in not really anticipating anything, but but blown away on every level. I thought it was very funny. Uh, through and through, um, Michael Showalter, the director, gets uh, uh, great performances out of everybody, but he gets an especially, I mean, I think it's some of the best work Holly Hunter has ever done uh, as the mother of the uh, comatose uh, girl, a uh, woman, young woman, is fantastic. And um, it's also amazing that Ray Romano is a terrific, both comedic and dramatic actor. I mean, the guy just deserves to be in every other indie movie, and as it's shaping up, might be, but uh, he gives a wonderful performance. So I really, really enjoyed The Big Sick. I think it's an accomplished film. Um, and it also uh, erased the look of withering indifference off of my 14-year-old daughter's face for at least 40 minutes. So uh, it's, <laughs> it's a work of fucking near genius, as far as I can tell. But then very quickly, I'm a huge fan of the uh, punk LA punk band X. And I'm always surprised to discover people don't know them, or even people who liked the Pistols and the Clash don't really know them. I mean, they are so worth rediscovering. Uh, Xenor Cervenka and, um, and John Doe were the two main people in them. But my real endorsement is John Doe went on to have a, I think, really interesting um, 
very country-inflected, folky career as a solo artist since. He's still going. He's on tour. He's a wonderful live performer. And his discography is really good. The solo stuff of John Doe, is some of it is wonderful. And he has a best-of album, so you don't have to kind of wade through it half-lost. Um, just get the, I think it's called The Best Of or The Very Best of John Doe. There's so much terrific music on there. And, and as far as I know, virtually no one knows it, but it deserves to be better known. He's a very good singer, very good songwriter. So John Doe, that's my uh, endorsement. All right, Jamel, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It is always a huge pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, as always. Dana, thanks so much. Thank you, Stephen. It was great. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of that network, and you can check out an entire roster of really kind of great shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Jamel Bowie and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. In my dreams, I'm still digging that ditch. And now you're talking to the